Good morning. Hello. There I am. Cool. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good? Glad you made it for uh, a good Colorado winter morning. I think we're supposed to go back to fall later this week, so I'm pumped about that. Fall's my favorite season, so I get really angry at the weather when it tries to bypass it. I don't know about you. I mean, yeah, there's, oh, fall's amazing. So this week, Amanda and I, my wife, we were looking for a movie on Netflix. And I don't know if you, like, if you have Netflix, you, you probably can sympathize with us. Sympath- Netflix is amazing. It is so amazing, but it's also awful at the same time. It is horrendous, right? There's so much that you can watch. You're bound to find something that's really enjoyable, really good, really quality. But at the same time, you can spend as much time looking for a movie as it would take to actually watch a movie, right? And you know, I get in my own head because I think, well, I don't want to waste time watching a movie that's not good. So I'll spend the time like sifting, scrolling, and scrolling to try to find a movie that's actually good, but then I end up wasting a bunch of time there too. So that's something that really annoys me about it. But we ended up finding something, and something else about Netflix, if you have it, you can probably relate with this as well. Something that they started doing recently, which is actually ingenious, but it's super annoying, is it'll automatically start playing the trailer for you if you just hover over it just long enough. And I'm talking like maybe a second and a half, and it'll just start playing, and you don't want it to. I mean, usually we, we flip through and just try to find a quick synopsis. We want to read something. We'll get through half, half of that first sentence, and it'll just automatically start playing this trailer for us. And it's so annoying. But it's ingenious because a trailer, and I promise this is all relevant, so hang with me. The purpose of a trailer is to give you enough of a glimpse, enough information, enough of a teaser to communicate that you should watch this movie. You should watch this show. It tries to give you enough to entice you, to, to tell you that this is worth watching. And so that's my goal for this morning. As we enter into this, this series on the book of James, my goal is to do an overview. We're not actually going to get into the nitty-gritty of the book yet. We're just going to be talking about the general, the context, the background. And my hope is that I'll give you enough information, enough background that we can head into the rest of this series with excitement, with anticipation, things to look forward to, and hopefully it'll, it'll help us as we go. So along with that, I want to give you another thought, another thing to think about. A trailer serves another purpose. A trailer gives you kind of a roadmap for how the movie's going to go, right? Has anybody here ever tried to watch a movie without knowing anything about it? I mean, like, you don't watch a trailer, you don't read a synopsis, you don't know who's in it, you don't ask a friend what's it about, you just go into it with faith, hoping that it's going to be good and worth your time. So every time I try to do that, I am lost. <laughs> Legitimately, within the first five minutes, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on, there's this weird artsy scene going on, and something, I don't, I don't get it. And then I lose patience, I eventually get bored, and probably like 10, 15 minutes in, I'm like, Dude, I don't want to sit through this whole movie, this is boring. So a trailer, again, kind of gives us a roadmap. It gives you a bird's eye view of what's going to happen. It helps you kind of fit things together. You have some things to look forward to. You have snippets. You have excitement. And so, unfortunately, some of us, many of us, and I, I, I still do this a lot, when we come to the Bible, sometimes that's how we come. We come without a trailer. We come without any background. We come without any roadmap. And we just want to jump in and read it. But if we don't know anything, if we don't have a context, it's very easy to get confused or bored, and then we just stop. So again, with that in mind, that's my goal for this morning. 
as we, as we go into this, this isn't going to be a normal sermon. We're not going to be getting too much into Scripture. We will a little bit. But my hope is to set up the book of James for us for these next, I mean, we're going to go on for five more weeks after today. So I want to set it up well. So first, I want to start with some context. Because context is important, right? That's what trailers give us. That's what I want to give you this morning as a, as a context for the book of James. And I'm talking things like the author, the audience, the genre, um, the date when it was written, basic things in, that lie in the background that kind of help shape the way we read a book. So I'm just going to go right through these, and I, I encourage you, if you're taking notes, these are some great things to take notes on. Um, you can also do research on your own if, if you're interested or into that, but I encourage you to because this will help you read the book of James. So let's start with the author. The author is important. It's important to know who wrote something, right? And this, we see this today. It, we have to know who wrote a message, a book, a letter, you know, fill in the blank. So here's an example. I mean, I think the vast majority of us in here use text messages as a form of communication. Have you ever gotten a text message like this? It says, hey, bro, you should come hang. It's going to be lit. I mean, I don't know how many of you people use this language. I'm trying to be hip here. I don't actually type like this. Little fire. It's going to be fire. It's going to be lit. And then, how many of you have gotten a message back like this? New phone. Who dis? I don't know where the, the D came from. Who dis? I, I don't know. It started. But this, is, this happens because people change phones and you don't know what's going on. So if you get this message, hey, bro, you should come hang out, it, it could mean a very different thing depending on who sent it, Right? And I mean, if it's your grandparents sending that text message, you might be a little worried at the kind of language that they're using. Okay, let's go to the next one. Who's this? James. All right. I know a lot of Jameses. James who? Uh, the apostle. Or not the apostle. It's me, James from the Bible. Okay. Getting a little bit more specific. Which one? Which one? There's more than one James. I know a lot of Jameses in the Bible. Okay, next one. The apostle. Okay, which one? <laughs> the best one, right? <laughs> so it makes a difference, right? And as we're going to see, there are more than one James, there is more than one James in the Bible, in the New Testament. So just because we know that this book of James is written by a guy named James doesn't really help. We need to know a little bit more. So I'm going to give us, um, well, first and foremost, let's look at verse 1-1 one, one, because... This does tell us right off the bat, this is how we know that James wrote this. He starts the book by saying his name, James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's also very specific. All the other Jameses probably would have said that as well. To the, tri to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So this is his opening line of the book. It's basically saying, this is who I am, this is who I'm writing to, greetings, hello. This is how they started a letter. So, but... It, it, it's helpful to know which James we're talking about. Which James are we looking at? So I'm going to give you a list because there's actually three or four Jameses in the New Testament. The first one is one that we're probably most familiar with if you, if you know Scripture well, if you've been raised in church. There's James, the son of Zebedee. That's a fun name, Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee. So he, his brother was John. Their nicknames were the Sons of Thunder. It's kind of a cool nickname. James was in the inner circle of Jesus. So of the 12 disciples, Jesus actually had an inner circle of three. 
And James was a part of that three. Those are the people that Jesus invested the most in. And so we see James, this James, all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Gospels. He's got a lot of stories dedicated to him, how he interacts and stuff like that. So there's one. There's actually two apostles named James. So that's, that's also can be kind of confusing. So the second James is called the James, son of Alphaeus. There's another cool name. Son of Alphaeus. So there's a second apostle, which is already confusing. But we actually know very, very little about this James, to, to be completely honest. I mean, I don't know how many people in here could actually name all 12 disciples, all 12 apostles. Some of them really didn't do very much in the early church, unfortunately. They probably did, or we just don't know about it. So we really know, know virtually nothing about this particular James. Number three, we have James the Less or James the Younger. How would you like that as a nickname? The Less. James the Less. That's a bummer. We know even less about this James. So actually, a lot of scholars think that this was a nickname. They actually think that this was just a nickname for either the second one, James of Alphaeus, or our fourth, James, which is James, the brother of Jesus. So we've got four names. There might, might be three James in the, in the New Testament. But we have James, the brother of Jesus. Jesus had brothers. He actually had siblings. James is one of them. Jude is another. But we know, especially if you look at the, the book of Acts, if you read this and in, in, in basically in throughout church history as well, we know that, the, that this James the brother of Jesus, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus reappeared um, after the resurrection. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So we have a bunch of these Jameses, and it's most likely the fourth option. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't know for sure, but the vast majority of scholars believe that James, the brother of Jesus, is the one who wrote this book because... James, the son of Zebedee, our first option, he actually died very, very early on. He was martyred for his faith, probably too early to have written this letter. The second one, like I said, we don't know much about James, the son of Alphaeus, at all. He didn't really hold a very prominent role in the church, so it's probably unlikely that he would have written a letter that would have stuck as well. And then James, the less or the younger, that's probably a nickname. We get James, the brother of Jesus. So if we take this and understand that this is the James who wrote this book. Just think about that for a second. We're talking about the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine if your sibling came up to you one day, 30 years old maybe, they hit 30, and they're like, hey, guess what? I'm, I'm God. You should worship me and follow me. How do you think that would go over? <laughs> Probably not well. It didn't go well either for, for Jesus. So uh, we know in, in John 7, 5, in one of the Gospels, we're told, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, which, you know, I read that and I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense, right? You're not likely to believe that your sibling is God and worship him and give, devote your life to him. So it kind of makes sense. But something changed along the way. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, I don't have it on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7 tells us that Jesus specifically appeared to James after the resurrection. So after he rose again from the dead and he started appearing to his disciples and all these people, again, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was not one of the 12. But Jesus specifically appears to him afterward. And that's probably enough evidence for James to be like, okay, Jesus, I believe you now. <laughs> I think you're God. 
So something changes. James gives his life to Jesus and begins to follow him, worship him, and eventually lead the church in Jerusalem. So more than anything, I think that's something to appreciate. We're reading a letter from a man who worshiped his brother as God. Like, that's a big hurdle. And I also think that gives so much credibility to the, the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, his death and his resurrection, because only something that magnificent and miraculous could convince someone like James that his own brother was actually God. So just take a moment to, to let that sink in. This is a special, special document that we have in the Bible. So the second thing for context, I want to talk about date. When was this book written? And some of you might be thinking, oh, a long time ago. I mean, the whole Bible is written a long time ago, so what does it matter, right? Well, yes, it was written a long time ago, but it also makes a difference. How many of you have ever gone on a trip or something where you didn't have any service? Brian did this week. He, he, uh, I called him a couple times and sent him text messages, and I got really frustrated with him that he wasn't responding right away because, you know, that's how, we, that's how we go in the, in the 21st century. But if you go on a trip and you don't have service and you come back and you get all these text messages all of a sudden, it can be really helpful to look at when, you, when they were sent. Because otherwise, if you get something that day that someone sent to you five days in the, in the past, it could completely change the context. It might not apply anymore, right? So even a slight date difference makes a difference for how we read this book. So and this might seem uh, nitty-gritty at first, but I, I promise you there's a good point for this. So, most likely, this book was written after the year 44 AD. So Jesus most likely died in either 30 or 33. So this is a good 10, 15 years later. It was most likely written after the year 44. And the reason for that is that if James is the, the leader in the Church of Jerusalem... There is a man named Peter who is the top dog. He was, he was the apostle that Jesus commissioned to lead his church, really. I mean, he commissioned all of his disciples, but, but Peter in particular held a special place. But Peter was there also. And in the year 44, Peter left to do ministry elsewhere. And that's really when James started to take over predominant leadership at this church. So it's most likely after 44 that James would have had the authority to write a letter to the, the church at large that would be circulated. So most scholars think it was after the year 44. This James died in 62, so it was most likely written before that, if, I mean, if he read it, wrote it when he was alive. But we also know that it was most likely written before the year 49. And I, I'm kind of a nerd with some of this stuff, so bear with me. In the year 49, there was a council for the early church called the Jerusalem Council. And we can read about this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15 in particular, the Jerusalem council is when all of the, the New Testament, the church leaders came together and they decided, they had to figure out, okay, what do we do with the Gentile believers? What do we do with all these people that aren't Jewish but are coming to faith in Jesus? And if you know, I mean, Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism. He didn't come to establish a new religion. He came to fulfill Judaism. So we have all these or non-Jewish people coming in that are believing, and they're like, okay, what do we do with them? Do we make them get circumcised? Do we make them eat according to the kosher laws? Do we make them follow all of these Jewish laws that we have known in our faith for so long? Or do they have a special category for them? So that's the Jerusalem Council. They ultimately decided, no, 
thank God that we, <laughs> that we don't have to follow a lot of those things. But this is important because this is when Paul, who wrote most of the books in the New Testament, was really, like, that's when he really got enfolded into the inner workings of the church. So James and Paul probably didn't know each other very well up until this point, or they very much, very well didn't know each other's perspectives on theology and things like that. And we'll talk about why that matters in a little bit. But in order for the book of James to make sense, he, he had to have written it at a different time period than Paul. So what we're left with is the book of James was written most likely between 44 AD and 49 AD. And the cool thing about that is, here's the, here's the kicker. This, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. James is the earliest New Testament document in all of Scripture. So of everything in the New Testament, James was written first. It doesn't come in that order, but it was written first. And so, again, we have a document written by the brother of Jesus, and it's the earliest Christian document that was circulated amongst the churches that made it into Scripture. So again, that makes a difference because some of the things that Paul wrote happened 30 years later. It shapes the way we read this if we know that, that this was written early. Okay, next piece, audience. It's helpful to know who James was writing to. I mean, for, I just I think of my family a lot with, with some of these illustrations, but I think about Amanda and Teddy. I speak very differently to Manda than I do Teddy, right? <laughs> Teddy is 21 months old. He's approaching on two. You know, I don't go up to Teddy and say, hey, Teddy, how was, how was daycare today? Did anything happen? How do you feel about that? Like, do you want to debrief? Let's talk about this. You know, I want to talk to you about my day. I don't have that kind of conversation with Teddy. And in the same vein, I don't go to Manda and say, oh, Manda, did you poo-poo? Do we need to change your diaper? <laughs> I have that conversation with Teddy multiple times a day. Ask him if he went to the bathroom. <laughs> so the audience matters. It changes the way we, we speak, and it changes the way James speaks. So it's helpful to know who he's writing to. So going back to that very first verse, 1-1, James, he says who he is, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And so that can be kind of confusing. He's like, okay, what? Who are the 12 tribes? What is going on here? Well, for the Jewish community, they often referred to all Jews as the 12 tribes because the Jewish people were, were split up into 12 tribes in the Old Testament. So it was very common for them to say instead of, to all Jewish people, they would say to the 12 tribes. And he specifically says scattered among the nations. So he's specifically writing this letter to Jewish Christians that are not in Jerusalem and probably not in Israel either. So the people that live outside of his home country. Does that make sense? So he's writing to Jewish Christians. And the context clearly tells us that this is a Christian document. He's writing to believers. But it's also helpful to know, like I said earlier, that Christianity at, at its heart is not a brand new religion. It's, it's to fulfill Judaism. All the first Christians were Jews. They just believed that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. So he's writing to people who consider themselves to be Jewish, who believe in this man Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And that makes a difference because, again, there's this whole other group of people that weren't Jewish, the Gentiles. 
he would probably speak very differently to Gentile Christians who knew nothing about the Old Testament than he would to people with a Jewish background. All right, next on the list, I'm going to try to keep going, cruising through these things. Genre. This can be helpful too. I try to tell this to our students all the time, um, and I remind myself all the time as well. It's helpful to know what kind of document we're reading, right? If you open up the book of Psalms and expect a story, you're probably not going to find one. The Psalms is a bunch of poetry. It's a bunch of, of worship toward God. It's very, very poetic. If you open up um, a letter in the New Testament, like James, and expect to find a bunch of short wisdom sayings, you're not going to find it. It's helpful to know what we're reading. So the book of James is very simply a letter, but it's a little bit different than the letter. Like he starts it like most other letters. He t t says his name. He says who he's writing to, and he says greetings. But he doesn't close. He doesn't address anybody specifically. Most, most if not all, of Paul's letters, when he's writing a letter to a church or to a person, he says their name, and he addresses specific people. James doesn't. So he's probably not writing to a specific person. He's not naming people. He's not writing to people that he necessarily knows He's writing generally, and what we also see is that it's almost like a, a book of wisdom, similar to Proverbs that has a lot of short sayings that are wise. That's kind of the style that James is going at. He's giving a collection of wisdom and practical advice for what it means to live a Christian life. That's what he's doing. It's meant to be practical. It's meant to be wise. It's meant to be lived out. And then last but not least, I want to, uh, uh, the pieces of context that I want to give you is that basic contents, right? I mean, trailers kind of give you all these quick snapshots of what's going to be in the movie. That's what I hope to do with this list. So of the things that James addresses, he addresses a lot of things, and there's some, some main um, categories that overarch all of that, but these are some of the things that he talks about. He talks about concern for the poor, purity of life, unity in the church, patience and endurance in trials, talks about taming your tongue, obedience. He talks about not showing favoritism. He talks about what does it mean to love your neighbor. He talks about doing good deeds. He talks about the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. He talks about how to pray. How are you even supposed to pray? That's pretty practical. He talks about planning for the future. He talks about social justice. That kind of goes with concern for the poor, but he talks very specifically about issues of justice amongst people, and he talks about making promises. There's a, and this, there's more, I think. I just grabbed um, the, the most obvious ones that I could see. But he's going to talk about all of these things in one way or another. So as we read this book, maybe you see something on here. I'm like, oh, man, I'd like to know more about that. James wrote this book for us as well. He wrote it to the Jewish Christians, but it's for all of us, for how do we even do this thing called the Christian life? How do we do this thing called faith? What do we even do? How do we live differently? That's what this book is about. It's about how do we live our faith out. And if you were to summarize this whole book in one statement, I know that's kind of hard to do because it's a whole letter, but you kind of can. If you were to summarize it in one statement, this is something to remember. It's basically this. Faith without works is dead. And James says that himself. That's in chapter 2, verse 17. I don't want to get too much because then I'll spoil uh, chapter 2 here in a couple weeks. But if you were to summarize the whole book, this is kind of his theme of that works matter. The way you live matters. And there's a tension here. 
I don't know if you've personally felt it or if you've thought about it before. Maybe you haven't, and that's okay. But I just want to point it out. There's a tension with this statement. So much so that, I don't know, how many people in here have ever heard of Martin Luther? Okay, Martin Luther was one of the most foundational figures in the Protestant Reformation in in the 1500s. So that's this whole church, um, wow, this whole church movement where these people looked at the Catholic Church and like, okay, there's some funky things here going going on here. And it basically got to this point where they decided that they needed to split off completely and start something new to reform theology, reform church practices, and that's how we got Protestantism. So this happened in the 1500s. Martin Luther was one of the main figures that helped that along. Well, so there's a lot of tension in this statement, so much so that Martin Luther himself said that he didn't think James belonged in the Bible. I'm serious. He did not want this in the Bible. He didn't think it fit. Because one of the biggest things that Martin Luther contributed to us, and I think it's one of the best contributions ever, is that he looked at Paul's writings and he said, one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith is that we are justified by grace alone. We are justified by grace alone. It's not about what we do. It's not about how we live. God saved us because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's an open gift to us. And so for Martin Luther, he looked at this and said, okay, looked at the book of James and said, this doesn't seem to fit. So I'll give you a quick snapshot of this. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 9, or 2, verse 8 and 9, he says a lot of things similar to this, but here he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Seems pretty clear. And then James, and we're going to read about this, in chapter 2, verse 24 says, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. At first glance, it seems like they contradict. There's a tension. And Martin Luther wrestled with that. I don't agree with him, and I I think he's wrong. Um, And he is wrong because James is in the Bible. (laughs) But he saw the tension and he wrestled with it. So much so, I I love this quote, but I think, I mean, this, this gives you a picture into the person of Martin Luther. He says this. He says, The most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. That's quite a quote. (laughs) There's some fire in there. And I agree with him. But again, that's why he wrestled so much with the book of James. So what do we do with this tension? Come back in two weeks and find out. (laughs) Right? We're doing a trailer. I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm trying to give you glimpses, trying to keep you on a leash a little bit. If you can't wait for a couple of weeks, reach out to me. I'd love to take you out for coffee or something like that. I love talking about theology, scripture, church history, you name it. But this is what I'll say. For us today, good works are a part of the Christian life. So yes, there's tension here, but even Paul would say that good works are, are needed, right? They're a part of the Christian life. So that, that passage that I quoted in Ephesians, It goes on. I I intentionally grabbed two verses. There's a third one that goes right after it in verse 10. And Paul continues and says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in one breath, he says, 
yes, you are saved and you are justified by grace alone. It's a gift from God. But then he continues on and says, okay, but God created us to do good things. Good works are a part of our faith. And so as we get into the book of James, he's going to give us some very, very clear, basic, practical, wisdom-type topics to wrestle through and realize that if we really claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, then it should show in our lives. The last thing I want to really hang on this morning is something that, that may surprise some of you. I don't know what your, how much you've thought through some of these things or how much you have thought about the afterlife, you know, the Christian hope, all of these other things. But the Christian hope is not a destination, but maturation. It's too often Christians, we treat our faith as if it's just some ticket to heaven that we know where we're going when we die. A destination, right? We think, okay, if you just believe in Jesus, then you get to go to heaven. We think that's the hope. That's what we hope for. It's a destination. But that's not it. It's part of it, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, but it's so incomplete. Our hope as Christians, when we believe in Jesus, our ultimate hope is a process of maturation where we will literally become like Jesus. We will become more human. We will become more ourselves throughout all of eternity. That's our hope. And that's a, that's a big thing to unpack. I realize that. But I want to help us to shift gears a little bit because if all your faith is is something to assure you that you're going to the right place when you die, I mean, you'll probably go there, right? If you believe in Jesus, you're saved. I believe that but you're missing out so much on what God has really intended for you and for us as the church. So I want to give you some, some quick snapshots here in other parts of Scripture that I think will help us to understand this a little bit. First and foremost, 2 Corinthians 5.17, I, I quote this a lot, it's not going to be on the screen, but I quote this a lot. It says, if, anybody is in, if anyone is in Christ... There's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's literally a new reality in our lives when we believe in Jesus. And this is what it looks like. 1 John 1.12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Actually, sorry, that's not 1 John. That's just John. John 1.12. We're children of God. That's part of the new reality. We are literally God's children. Romans 6.6, 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Part of the new reality is that sin does not have any control over us anymore. It may feel like it, and it does feel like it often, but sin ultimately does not have the final say. Death does not have the final say. That's part of this new reality that we live in. Ephesians 2.19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So we are members of God's household. We are part of the family of God, which actually makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of this new reality. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So again, look at this. 
just a little bit. Our hope is so much more than just going somewhere when we die. Our hope is that we are a part of a new reality that gets to start now and extends into heaven and into eternity, that we literally are God's children, that we are a part of his family, that sin and death have no hold over us anymore, and that for the rest of our existence, we will be made, shaped, and formed into people that look more like Christ. And in the process, we will look more like ourselves too. Because God created us with a purpose. He created us with an intent in mind. It's not just so we would go get to enjoy this place when we die. It's so that we could become like him, to become who we were intended to be. That's our hope. And so in light of that, the book of James makes sense because James is telling us, okay, if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, these are some of the things that you should work into your life in order to become more like Jesus in order to become more like the person you were created to be. It's a process. So the verses that I have up there, that's a small sample size. There's a ton more. This is one thing that really excites me about Scripture is that it teaches us not only about God, but it teaches us about ourselves and who we were intended to be. But the, the Christian life is a process of becoming something. There's a, there's a theological statement that I love to say is, is um, the already but not yet. I don't know if you've heard of that. The already but not yet. So this reality, this new reality, is already here because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's already. It's true. So when you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God. You are sanctified. You are justified. You are holy and blameless. You are all of these things. But in such a way that it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really feel real yet, right? I mean, I, I remember distinctly when I became a Christian, when I decided to give my life to Jesus, it's not like everything switched in my life and all of a sudden I was a perfect person. It's a process. So God looks at us and says, this is true of you. But now we also live in the, the not yet. It's already, but not yet. Now we live in this process of seeing these things come to fruition in our lives over time that will ultimately culminate in the afterlife. So that is why, think about this too, that is why we as Rock Creek Church have this as our mission statement. We exist, this is Rock Creek Church, we exist to equip every person to take the next step in becoming a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to help one another along this process of becoming who we are in Christ of seeing these things come about in our lives. That's why we exist. And this road isn't always easy. It's not always straight. It's not always easy to see. It can be really challenging. That's why we do it together. That's why I believe Jesus established his church and he calls us his family. We are literally brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we're meant to have each other, to walk this process together. But ultimately... We have a goal that Jesus has set before us. Paul talks about it like a race. Not, not a sprint that you get done quick, with quickly. He talks about it like a race that, that he will continue to race and press on and work and work and work until that which is his is more fully his in reality. I know that can be kind of confusing to, to conceptualize. But again, we live in a new reality. We can't see it, 
but we live in a new reality, and Jesus wants to bring it about in your life in practical ways. So as we continue on in this series of James, hopefully that this is a good preface, a good overview. It's helpful to know some of these things. It's helpful to know that, that James is the brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote this. It's helpful to know that this is the earliest Christian document that we have, the earliest book of the New Testament. It's helpful to know that it's written to Jewish Christians because that might change some things of the way we read it, right? Some things might be a little bit more Jewish than we realize. And it's meant to be practical. It's meant for us to actually live out. It's not good advice. These are things that if we put them into practice and take them seriously, we will see our lives become more and more like the life of Christ. And that's our hope. So I hope that you will come back for the rest of our series. If not, listen online um, if you're not able to make one of these, these Sundays. But take this process seriously. As we get into this book, ask God, what, what do you want to do in my life? Where do you want to mature me? Where, where do you want to challenge my thinking? Maybe I've accepted something that isn't of you that needs to be challenged. Ask God, be open with that. Be open with your life. Be open with your routines, your habits, your lifestyles. Be open with those things and come before God and say, how would you like to, to morph me? How would you like to transform me, shape me after your image? And I promise you, if that's your approach to this book, it will be extremely life-giving to you. It will be. So I want to end this morning with communion, um, something we, we do every month. And I love this, this act because this, this is an act of remembering Jesus. That's all it is. It's an act that unites the church throughout all the world, throughout all of history. It's some, one of the things that the Christian church has always done. But we remember Jesus in this act. We remember in the, in the bread that he broke himself. He died on a cross in a way that was pretty gruesome for us so that we could have this hope. And the juice represents his blood that was spilled out and poured out for us. So as we take that this morning, I just encourage you to, you know, some of the things I just laid out for the book of James, you know, that openness, you know, asking God where you want to show me how, how I need to grow. You know, take some time now to pray some of those things. Open yourself up to what, what God wants to do in your life. And when you're ready, come and, and take uh, of the elements, the, the bread and the, and the juice. Uh, also to help things to, to move along, if you can come down the side aisles and return to your seat through the center aisles, that'll help congestion. But let me pray for that and then we'll, we'll close. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for, uh, for this book that is James. And I'm excited that we get to get into it more in depth. But Father, we know that as James, your earthly brother, came to know you and worship you as God, I pray that you would help us to remember that this morning, that you are who you said you are, that you really did die on the cross for us, that you really did rise again on the third day, and that you are alive and at work in our lives right now. You want to, to mold us and shape us and mature us into the people you've created us to be. 
So I thank you for that this morning and ask that you would help focus our hearts, center our hearts on this act and help us to remember you along with the rest of your church throughout the world. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.